for Israel and the Jewish people, nobody was more powerful or more important than the priest. They were uh, this position that were not just theological leaders. They were not just spiritual guides They, uh, for the nation. They were really the positions. They were the judges. They were uh, everything that you would think of they would be as leaders. And sometimes they were even politicians, even though they weren't really intended to be that role. And, and so everybody held them in high regard. And I want you to think um, of somebody that you think is really close to God. All right. So everybody, you can kind of think of somebody that you think maybe an author or a pastor or a speaker or somebody that you've heard that you kind of think you kind of maybe put them up on a little pedestal and like this person is as close to God as I'm ever going to get here on earth, right? For the Jews in the first century, that's what the priest was. It was the closest they were ever going to get to God himself, right? So they highly esteemed them, even though they knew their priests were not perfect. They knew their priests made mistakes. And so as that video showed you, they, they lived kind of with this anticipation that there was coming this royal priest. There was coming this priest that was going to be better than any priest they ever had in the past and better than any high priest they ever had. And so um, the book of Hebrews, we've been working through it, kind of talks and is really trying to convince the people, the Hebrew people, that Jesus... Jesus is the one you've been looking for from the very beginning, right? And so he starts with this idea that if you're looking for a great high priest, Jesus is the one you should be looking for, right? The whole book of Hebrews is all about Jesus being superior, and he's walked through several aspects. He talked about Moses uh, several weeks ago, and now he's moved to uh, his brother Aaron. And we're going to see that his priesthood, as, as Jesus' priesthood, is superior. It's greater to Aaron because he does what Aaron cannot do. He is our saving high priest. And I know many of you may have came this morning. You were thinking, oh, it's the Sunday before Thanksgiving. He's going to give us this Thanksgiving message. He's going to tell us about why we should be thankful and how we should be thankful and all that. And I'm going to say, some of that for tonight, but I'm going to tell you that this text gives us something to ex- to be extremely thankful for, not just on this day and not just this week, but every day of our life. You see, this text is what allows us to have salvation. So I want you to read with me in Hebrews chapter 5, the first 10 verses. We're going to start in verse 1 of Hebrews 5. And it says, For every high priest taken from man is appointed in service to God for the people, to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sin. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are not or excuse me and are going astray, since he is also subject to weakness. Because of this, he must make a sin offering for himself as well for the people. No one takes or excuse me, no one takes this honor on himself. Instead, a person is called by God just as Aaron was. In the same way, the Messiah did not exalt himself to become a high priest, but the one who said to him, You are my son. Today I have become your father. Also said in another passage, You are the priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. During his earthly life, he offered prayers and appeals with loud cries and tears to the one who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Though he was God's son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. After he was perfected, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who believe or obey him. And finally, verse 10. And he was declared by God a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Let's pray together. Father, we have so many blessings of yours to be thankful for. 
God's small wins that we take for granted each and every day, and just our health and our well-being for jobs that we have, roofs overhead, and food on our table. God, we so often take those things for granted. But God, this morning we are confronted with a massive blessing that we so often take for granted as well. And so God, this morning I pray that in the stillness and quietness of this moment, you remind us of our great high priest. God, that your word be alive this morning, that it speak to us. And God, it penetrate even to the depths of our souls. God, that it speak to our hearts. God, that it reminds us that we have a saving high priest who set aside the perfections of heaven to take our place and do what no one else could do. And so, God, I pray this morning that you speak. God, I pray that our hearts are ready to listen to you. God, for some of us, we need to hear this message for the first time. God, for some of us, we need to come to your throne of grace through the blood of Christ for the first time. But God, for some of us, we need to come back with a better understanding and a new understanding of what it meant to accept Him in this position of His, of his great high priest. And so, God, I pray this morning that you will speak. God, I pray that we will listen. And God, I pray this morning that our, your Holy Spirit will transform our lives from the inside out. Father, in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Every four or eight years, depending on elections and things like that, our nation undergoes a massive transition, right? Depending on the presidential election, if he gets reelected or not, when a new president is elected every four years or every eight years, there's this massive transition that happens within our nation. And, and most people really just kind of focus on two of the people involved in that transition. They think, hey, we got a new president, and in January, on January 20th, he's going to be installed as the new president. And so there's this small transition, there's a big ceremony that happens, and all this big celebration that happens on Inauguration Day, and there's this transition of power from one president to another. Right? There's another little smaller celebration that happens, a little uh, 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 swearing-in of a vice president. So everybody really all around the whole world focuses on the appointment or the, the election in the, the process of this small transition. And I say it's small because I want you to understand that when this transition of power happens from one president to another, we only see a small, small portion of the transition that's actually happening. You see, we see two people. We see a president and a vice president taking over offices. Right? They were elected to those We voted, or other people voted, for those people to be in those offices. They were elected. You know, they campaigned. And, and maybe you're like me. I'm already tired of hearing campaign commercials for next election. All right? And people are trying to make predictions for 2024 and 2028. And I'm just like, well, let's just get through 2021. All right? But so we, we focus all our attention on these two people who campaigned and they ran for office and they were elected. And what we fail to realize is that there's really this whole branch of government that really transitioned. This transition is much bigger than just these two people. Because one of the things these two people have to do is they have to decide who's going to be kind of their inner circle. right? They have to decide who's going to be in cabinet positions and secretary of this and secretary of that and who's going to be the director of this and director of that. They have to appoint all these ambassadors, really over 200 different ambassadors. They have to appoint secretaries of states and all these hundreds, if not even thousands of positions that all these people get appointed to. right? These people get put in a position and you and I don't get to choose them. Okay, They're appointed to those positions. They don't run for those positions. We don't vote for those positions. I don't know if you realize that or not. But we don't vote for the vast majority of our government officials. We vote for one or two of them, and they get to pick the rest of them. 
Right? And so we have all these different positions, all these people making these different decisions, and none of them are elected officials. They are appointed to that position. Right? They're selected to be in that position by someone else. And so as we look at the idea of the, the priesthood of Christ, this idea of being a high priest, this is something that's different for us. We don't, we don't really understand high priests and priestly values because we didn't, we're not Jewish. right? So we're going to have to kind of put ourselves in first century Jewish culture for a little while and, and see why this is so important. Because for them, they thought the same thing of their high priest. They didn't vote, per se, for the high priest. There wasn't this national election, but there was this transition that happened for the high priest. But for them, they would say that one of the qualifications of the high priest was that it had to be appointed by God, right? And so as we look in chapter 5, and really what happens in chapter 5 is chapter 5 falls in the middle of this huge kind of discussion that really starts in chapter 4 and goes all the way through chapter 7, and it's telling you that Christ is the superior priest, right? Now, you've got to understand that for us, again, that's not a huge deal, but for a Jew who the priest is the most important person in their sphere, in their nation, this is huge. And so if you're going to convince folks that they need to leave one religion, leave the Jewish faith, and cling to the, the Christian faith, you've got to convince them that there's a better high priest than the one they see. Right? Because understand that the time this letter is written, Jesus is off the scene. He's died. He's been resurrected. He's ascended up to heaven. They don't see him physically there anymore. Except there is this other guy who is the high priest. They see him almost every other day. All right? or, or if they live in Jerusalem, they may see him a little less frequent than that because he, he hides out a little bit. But uh, this idea that Jesus is this high priest, it takes center stage and it starts all the way in verse 4 and runs all the way through verse 7. But as we get through these first 10 verses in chapter 5, there's this kind of interesting structure because what he does is really he focuses on the earthly high priest in the first four verses. And what he does is he gives you kind of four qualifications. These are, are, are the, the resume, or not the resume, this is the, the job description of the requirements to become high priest, right? So if you've been job hunting, if you've had to, to apply for a job, you, there's this job description that somebody put out there. One of the first things they usually put on are these are the requirements. These are the things you must have, you must know, you must do, or you must be willing to do if you want this job. And really the goal is to weed out other people because if you don't meet those qualifications, there's really no need to apply for this job. Okay. Now, if you've been in a hiring position, you know there's a lot of people that will apply for that job that still don't meet those qualifications. But that's why you put those qualifications very first in your job description. So the first four verses of this chapter are really this job description. This is the requirements for someone to be high priest. And then he goes back in verse 5 and he really revisits all of these qualifications. But what he does in verse 5, he says that Jesus meets this one, but he takes it a step further. And then he shows you the next one. He says Jesus meets this one, but he takes it beyond what you think. And then he meets this one in a different way than you ever thought possible. Right? So he really revisits all these qualifications of what it means to be priests and, and the high priest. Because as you remember, these were central to their belief system. They are the gatekeepers. They're the representatives. They're the mediators. This is your connection to God. Without these priests, there is no connection to God. And so if I'm going to have a connection with God, I want the best connection possible. And so what he's going to show you is, yeah, you can have this high priest who thinks he's a connection to God, but if you really want to be connected, then go to the saving high priest. And so the first thing he talks about in verse 5 that has to happen for one to become a high priest is it has to be appointed by God. I want you to look in verse 1 with me. And he says, For every high priest taken from men is appointed in service to God 
for the people to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Now, this will sound strange to us, but one of the things he very first points out is that the high priest is taken from men, right? Taken from human beings. Now, that sounds odd to us. That doesn't sound like that would be a question for us. But he puts this in writing. And we talked about how the Word of God is alive and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. It's precisely as God wanted it to be. And so he puts that in there for a reason. He needs you to know that the high priest isn't an angel. He needs you to know that the high priest, the mediator between humans and God, is not some kind of extra, uh, extraterrestrial superior being out there that stands between you and God. What he's telling you is the mediator between you and God is someone who is like you. It is a person. It is a man. So the high priest is a person. He's chosen from men, right? And he's selected for this position. And so if Jesus is going to fill this role as high priest, he has to be fully human. Now, for most of us sitting in here, that's never been a problem. We've always known that Jesus is fully human. But I need you to understand, again, the Word of God is precise. It's there because there are other folks who will say, yeah, we believe in Jesus, but their version of Jesus is very different than your version of Jesus. Because for them, Jesus is an angel. And it came down from heaven, and then he goes back up to heaven, and he's not a human being. There are other folks that claim to be Christians and say, well, Jesus never really was fully human. He never really had a a human body. He never really felt pain. He never really died because God doesn't do that kind of stuff. But I want you to understand, if he's going to fulfill the requirements of a high priest, he's got to be fully human. He's got to be 100% flesh and blood, just like you and I, all right? except he's beyond you and I. All right, so one thing, he's got to be human. This human being has to be appointed to be sent in this particular role. Right? And understand, this, this wasn't a role that they were meant to campaign for. They were never meant to like, put up signs in people's front yards. They were never meant to like, run TV commercials or Facebook ads. There was not really supposed to be this campaigning that happened. This was never meant to be this political position. It It became that, but it was never meant to be that. In fact, they make it pretty clear in verse 4, this was not something you were supposed to want and and desire for yourself, right? This was where God was supposed to put you in this position, and God was the one who appointed you. In verse 4, it says, No one takes this honor on himself. Instead, a person is called by God. And we'll come back to the end of that verse in just a moment, right? So you're going to select a person, a representative, to represent you before God. It has to be a human being. You can't select a donkey. You can't select an angel. You can't select any of these other mediators. It has to be a person. Right? And so Christ is check. He's got that role. He's a person. And he's selected. He's appointed by God. He is called by God. Right? And so he's going to represent us before God. Just like one of those ambassadors we talked about for just a moment, uh, just a moment ago. That the ambassador, we have over 200 ambassadors all over the world. Their job is to represent you and me. Okay? Their job is to represent the United States, but they also do service for that other country because for some of us, we've never even heard of some of these countries. For some of us, we'd be very quick to forget that there's other countries, there's all these small countries. And, and for some of us, and especially even in government positions, we only tend to think of the, the big governments, the big countries that are rich and powerful and, and either can do damage to us or that we can benefit from. And we forget that there's all these other ones out there that may need our attention. And so part of the job of the ambassador is both to represent us to them, but also to remind us that these places exist, that these people have needs and these people are there. So understand that the ambassador 
the priest works both ways. His job is to represent us before God, but it's also to remind us of the importance that God has in our lives. Right? And so each high priest has this same situation. They all have to be appointed by God. Now, there was some kind of selection or election that would take place, and, and people would, would, were supposed to notice that God selected this person. Right? For a while, they drew straws. Right? They, they laid sticks on the ground, and uh, whoever picked up the, the shortest stick or the longest stick, I don't remember which one it was. Right? So they cast lots, or they, they threw dice out, and whichever one got the, the magic number. Right? Well, that system kind of got changed a little later into it was a, an election process. There was a group of 70 men called the Sanhedrin that elected the leader. Right? So this group of 70, they selected or they elected one of those 70 to be the high priest. Now, you can imagine that if one person is going to be this important, there was some campaigning going on on the sides. There was some actually bribery that happened throughout the history of Israel. And so there was this election process. Who was going to be the next high priest? And, and so there was never this unanimous vote. There were always questions. And often this became very political. Right? Who was going to fill this position? But then that's the requirement. He's got to be appointed by God. We just got to figure out which one of these 70 men God appointed. Well, then he flips over to verse 5. And he says, listen, I'm going to show you a high priest that you don't have to question whether we selected the right one or not. Right? So in verse 5, there's no question that he is considered the high priest. I want you to see, because his appointment and his confirmation is very different than picking up straws or throwing dice. In verse 5, it says, in the same way, the Messiah, Christ did not exalt himself to become a high priest, but the one who said to him, You are my son. Today I have become your father. And he's quoting Psalm 2, verse 7. And for many folks uh, in, in Jesus' time, this was a messianic psalm. This was a psalm that was pointing to the Messiah. This was a psalm that was pointing to the anointed one. This is the, one, this is the, the psalm that's pointing to the priest that you've been waiting for. And so what the writer of Hebrews does is saying, you're absolutely right, this is a Messianic psalm. This is a psalm that's appointing, or, or pointing to the anointed one. But what you need to know is it's pointing you straight to Jesus. The one you're waiting for has a name, and his name is Jesus. He is the Christ. And so this is the one that you've been waiting for. And so I want you to notice something that's, that's happening here. What he's telling you is that Jesus didn't have to campaign to get this position. There's no selection. There's no election process taking place. You see, his appointment is straight from God, and God himself appoints Jesus as being this high priest. Jesus is appointed. There's, he doesn't have to climb some political ladder. You see, what folks will tell you, if you want a, an ambassadorship, sometimes you start as a deputy ambassador, and you start as a deputy ambassador to some faraway country that nobody knows about. And then after you do that for a few years, they'll move you to, to be in the ambassador. And then after you do that in that country for a few years, they'll move you to be an ambassador in some nicer place that you're not living in a bush somewhere. Right? And then they'll move you up the ladder. And so there's this political ladder you have to climb. Right? Very few people ever get to be president on day one. They just wake up and be like, you know what, I'm going to be president today. You think about it, almost every president we've had has started in political office at a lower level. They've either been a county commissioner or a house of representatives or a senator or a vice president. They've worked their way up the political ladder. But Jesus doesn't have to do that to become this high priest because his confirmation is not from people, it's from God. He doesn't have to work and he doesn't have to pull strings. He doesn't have to network with all the right people to get this position. He doesn't have to exalt himself and say, hey, you guys, everybody come look at me. He doesn't have to do any of that. Why? Because God is the one who says, hey, you need to look over here. 
This is my son. This is the one you need to pay attention to. God himself makes this appointment clear, and he makes his priesthood superior to all their priests because he is the only one that he calls this his son. And this appointment is very clear. This is from God. You see, this the first requirement as a, of being a priest is that you have to be appointed by God. And clearly, Jesus not only gets appointed by God, but he's confirmed by God as well. And the second requirement of being a priest, is that you had to be able to sympathize with those you represented. Right? And the goal with this is that you would be able to connect with the people because you had to know and share their struggles. You had to be able to walk through life with them. All right? you, you couldn't just sit in some big ivory tower. You just couldn't sit in the, the temple of Jerusalem. You couldn't just sit in, in all this, this bubble life and not get down with the people. You had to be able to struggle and, and see and feel the heartache of people and walk them through this life and their, their difficulties. Right? And so he says, this is the requirement in verse 2. In verse 2 he says, he must be able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and, not going, or, and are going astray since he is also subject to weakness. So you've got to be able to take God's Word and take it to somebody who doesn't know God's Word and walk them through God's Word. Right? You've got to be able to do that. Right? You can't just write them off. You can't just say, oh, well, they're not chosen. They're not part of God's people. Or they might be. They may not be. So we'll just write them off and eventually they'll catch up. The job of the high priest was the teacher, the instructor of all the nation of Israel. And so you've got to take somebody who's a baby in faith or has no faith and walk them to a point where they're completely trusting in your system. All right? That's what the high priest had to do. And so you had to be able to do this. And, and so what he tells them is you had to do this, and they were able to do this because they were subject to weakness. Right? Now, this word weakness can mean lots of things. It can mean physical weakness, which means the high priest was human just like you and I. He felt every physical element that there was. Okay? Not all at the same time, but guess what? The high priest, he got sick. He got the cold. He got the sniffles, just like everybody else did. Right? The high priest, most of them were older. He, got, he knew what it was like to wake up on a stone bed and be like, oh, man, feel that popping, cracking in your back. The high priest wasn't immune to any of that stuff. Right? He knew what it felt like to feel aches and pain. He knew what it felt like to feel the weather changing in your arms or your knees and kind of feel that pressure change. He felt those achy joints. The high priest felt those because he felt physically weak. He was physically weak, just like every other human being was. He wasn't some superior being that didn't feel that. Right? But it can also mean that he shared in their emotional weakness. He felt the same loss that everyone else felt. He felt heartache when the people felt heartache. Right? The requirement is he, God didn't want a priest that was stoic and emotionless. He wanted somebody that you could approach. And when you were broken, they were broken as well. He wanted somebody that, that when you had questions, they could come, you could go to them and you could feel their questions. Right? It, not just somebody that was stoic and didn't feel anything, didn't have any emotions. He felt heartache. He felt struggles. He felt pain. He felt all of that. Right? And there also wasn't just their physical weakness, their emotional weakness. There's also spiritual weakness. You see, every high priest felt the same temptation, the, the same trials and the same struggles. They were all there. Every struggle that you feel, the high priest felt as well. Why? Because he's human, just like you and I. The temptations that you and I go through, even though he's the high priest, he felt those same temptations. And see, Jesus is able to feel this qualification. He's able to sympathize with us the same as the regular high priest. In fact, we talked about this last week. In fact, the verse I've challenged you to memorize is Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, which we talked about again last week. But it's this, this beautiful passage that says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, 
but one who has been tested in every way as we are yet without sin. And so here in chapter 5, verses 7 and 8, he gives us a little more detail what that looks like. You see, he was tested and tempted and tried, and he went through every struggle that you and I have gone through. And we talked about what that looked like last week, but here he kind of hones it down just a little bit in verse 7. He says, During his earthly life, he offered prayers and appeals with loud cries and tears to the one who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. See, Jesus knew what it felt like to look at death straight in the face. He knew what it was like to feel that your time was limited. He knew what it felt like to know that you were coming to the end of your life. He knew it more than anybody else. And what the writer is referencing here is his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. Just hours before he was crucified, just hours left in his life, he knew the time was short. He knew what was about to happen to him. He knew it was all getting ready to play out. He knew that he had his time and his time was up. He knew that his time was ending. And so he enjoys this Last Supper with his disciples. He calls them into the upper room. They enjoy this last Passover meal. And he knows this is the end. And then he leaves this upper room and he walks out into the garden. And he tells some of them to stay and pray. And he's going to go a little bit further. And he's going to pray. And so in Matthew chapter uh, excuse me, I lost the text. Matthew chapter 26, he goes a little further. And he knows this time is coming. In verse 20, or 38 of Matthew 26, then he said to them, My soul is swallowed up in sorrow to the point of death. Remain here and stay awake with me. And then verse 39, going a little further, he fell face down and prayed, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you Will. You see, he's facing death, but it's not just an ordinary death. He is facing the cup of God's wrath and is being poured out on sin. And it's not just not for his sin, but for our sins. And let me tell you, if anybody knew what the cup of wrath looked like, it was Jesus. If anybody knew what judgment for sin looked like, it was Jesus. If anybody knew how painful and agonizing the judgment of sin was going to be, it was Jesus who had seen it all, knew it all, wrote it all, experienced it all. He, he would have seen all of this from the very beginning of creation. He knew how ugly sin was. He knew how much sin cost. He knew what the situation was. And yet here he is knowing that he's getting ready to face all of it. Not just sins for himself, but sins for you and for me and millions and billions of people around this world. He's getting ready to face it all. And here he is agonizing over it. There's a God who sympathizes with you because he's been tested in every way you have been. You want to talk about a God who can sympathize. Talk about a God who faces death and knows this is what's coming and has the power to stop it. Yet what is his prayer? Not what I want but what you want. Not what I want, but what is best and what you want to happen, God. And you see, in doing this, He knows how ugly sin is. He knows the judgment and the punishment that's coming. He knows it all and He does it anyway. And through this, He learns obedience, which is what is new for Him in verse 8. It says, Though He was God's Son, He learned obedience through what He suffered. Don't you think about that for a moment. The God of the universe had to learn something new. He had never had to be obedient 
to anything or anyone ever before. He had never had to be obedient. There was no one who gave him orders. There was no one who gave him commands. He was the one who demanded obedience. He was the one in charge of everything. And yet he leaves all of that. He steps out of all that. And now he has to learn what it feels like to be obedient. Why? So that you and I can be tested. So that you and I can have a sympathetic high priest who experiences the same pressures that you and I have. So that when he can say he learned obedience, so we should learn it as well. You see, he never had to be obedient. He also never learned or never knew physical pain. You see, he, in this role of high priest, he had to be obedient even to the death, even to death on the cross. He had to learn through suffering. Suffering was something new for him. He had never felt physical pain before. But in then, in this role, he's human just like you and I. In this role, he's got splinters in his hands. He's got calluses on his hands. He knows what it's like to feel pain. In this role, he knows what it's like to feel agony in a way that he never did before. It's through this role. He's able to sympathize in this role in a way that he never was before, which leads us to the third requirement of a high priest. And this is probably the one most people are familiar with, that he's to make sacrifices for sin. This is what most of us think of when we think of the high priest. This is what the picture we have. We saw it all the way back in verse 1. It says the high priest is appointed to serve to God for people in both offer, or offering both gifts and sacrifices. And then in verse 3, he reiterates that. He said because of his weakness, because of his struggles, in verse 3, because of this, he must make a sin offering for himself as well as for the people. We talked about that last week. And we talked about back in Leviticus, uh, the high priest was to go and make sacrifices one day a year. He got to go in this special holy place. And, but to do that, he had to make sacrifice for himself. And we talked about in Leviticus uh, chapter 16, verse 6, that Aaron, who was the high priest, was present this bull for his sin offering to make atonement for himself and for his household. Right? He had to make sacrifice for his sin before he could make a sacrifice for everybody else's sin. And he had to do this over and over and over. Year after year after year, the same ceremony, the same day repeated itself. But with Christ, it's different. The requirement is he's got to be able to make sacrifice for sin. And then we see Christ not able, not just making sacrifice for sin, but being the sacrifice for sin. In verse 8, though he was God's son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And then verse 9, after he was perfected, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey Him. Perfected means carried through to completion. Finish the task. I love this. It means it's the fulfillment of all the promises that you've been looking for. Fulfillment of all the prophecies that you've heard. Right After what He did, it was complete. And when He cries out on the cross, it is finished. The sacrifice, the plan, it is all finished. It's all complete. The work is done. Then He is the source of eternal salvation for all who obey Him. A source can also be translated as author. And I love the way that David Gusick puts this. He says that some don't want Jesus to be the author of their own salvation. They want to try to write their own book of salvation, but God won't read it. Only Jesus can author your salvation. You see, the only thing that Jesus is going to read, or God's going to read, for salvation is not anything you wrote. It's simply the book of life. He's going to look in one book, and it's the book of life, who the author of life, the perfecter of life, wrote your name either in or he didn't write it in. And the only thing that's going to matter on your day of judgment is, is your name in the book of life that's authored by the word of life. 
who is giving eternal salvation. You see, you can write all the books you want to trying to gain salvation. You can write all the pages you want to about doing good works. You can write all the pages about how you're a good person, about how you help this person. You can write all the pages you want to about the number of times that you came to the church or the number of verses you memorized. You can write all the pages you want to about all the Bible studies that you taught or all the Bible studies you came to. And none of that is going to be a source of salvation for any of you. You see, you can write all the pages you want to about all the authors you read or all the preachers you heard or all the mission trips you went on or none of that is going to be the source of your salvation. You can write all the pages you want to about how you knew this preacher and you knew this high priest and how you were worth this and how you did all of this and none of that's going to matter because the only source of salvation is Jesus. The only finished work of Christ is the only way to have salvation. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And the only way you're going to do that is through His sinless sacrifice. You see, Jesus is the priest we're looking for because He is the sinless Savior that offers salvation for us. Without His sinless salvation, we have no hope. Without His sinless salvation, it doesn't matter how you try to author or source your eternal salvation, you're never going to get it At best, you're only going to try to make up for what you sinned for in the past. And he tells you that you're never going to be able to gain that salvation. So if you're looking for a Thanksgiving message, this is it. If you're looking for something to be thankful for, this is it. If you're looking for a reminder that you've got something to be thankful for, be thankful that God offers you eternal salvation. Be thankful for that God offers His Son, Jesus, who was fully obedient. Be thankful for Jesus who stepped out of heaven in all perfection and became a sacrifice for you, felt pain and agony, took on your pain, took on your agony, took on your stripes so that you may be healed. If you want a reminder of something to be thankful for, all you need to do is look to my left and your right and see this cross. This is the source of our salvation. This is what we have to be thankful for. And it shouldn't just be one day. It should be a reminder every single time that you look at it that God loved you enough to provide salvation for you. But it took His cross to do it. There's one final qualification the high priest must meet. And that's that he had to follow the pattern that was set before him. And this is where things get a little interesting for the writer of Hebrews because this is where he, he's got some explaining to do. right? Because for, for folks in the first century and Jews in the first century, they're going to object to this idea that Jesus is a high priest at all. right? And they're going to look at verse 4 and say, No one takes this honor on himself. Instead, a person is called by God just as Aaron. You see, Aaron was the first priest, and actually he was the first high priest. And he was first because he was, uh, when the nation of Israel was first coming out of Egypt, they were first becoming a nation. God was giving his laws to Moses. And in Exodus chapter 28, God sets this pattern in verse 2 and verse 3 of Exodus 28. He says, Make holy garments for your brother Aaron for glory and beauty. In verse 3, You are to instruct all the sealed craftsmen whom I filled with the spirit of wisdom to make Aaron's garments for consecrating him to serve me as priest. You see, but Aaron's, it wasn't just Aaron, it was his sons. They were also consecrated as priests. And when Aaron died, his sons became priests. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, there's two groups that folks kind of get confused. There's the Levites and the priests. And you kind of read them back and forth. But I want you to understand there's a clear difference between those two. So let me explain it to you real quick. The Levites were one of the original tribes of Israel. There's Abraham, there's Isaac, and there's Jacob. And then the family tree really starts to splinter off after that. All right? So this is the family tree of, of, of Israelites. So they were Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Jacob has 12 sons. Right? And these are the 12 tribes of Israel. One of them was his son Levi. 
So those were the Levites. They were, their job was to care for the tabernacle. They were the ones who were to carry the tabernacle around. But here's the, the sad part of it. That's all they got to do. They got to carry it around. They got to set it up, but they never got to go inside. Most of them. You see, but in that family line of Levi, there was another family called Aaron. And Aaron is the priest we're reading about here. And so to be a priest, to actually go in and get inside the tabernacle after it was all set up, to perform the sacrifices, you had to be a descendant of Aaron himself, right? And so to, to, to be a priest, you not only had to be a Levite, but you had to be a descendant of Aaron. So it really narrows down who this was right? and who was able to be this high priest. And so folks are going to look at Jesus and they're going, whoa, 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 whoever this writer of Hebrews is, there's a problem here. Because we, we take this whole lineage thing very serious. And Jesus was not a Levite. And if he wasn't a Levite, then he wasn't a descendant of Aaron, which means he can't be the high priest. Because we know that Jesus was from the tribe of Judah. right? We know that. right? He's in a different branch of the family tree. And so for many of the readers that are going to read this, they're going, like, wait, 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 there's a problem here. We can't call him priest. We definitely can't call him high priest because he doesn't follow the family line. He doesn't follow the pattern that's set before him. He's from the tribe of Judah. You've got to be from the tribe of Levi, and you've got to be from the, tri- or from the family of Aaron if you're going to do this. And so what the writer of Hebrews does is, listen, I want you to understand, he's following a pattern, but he's following a different pattern than what you're expecting. See, he introduces this other character from the Old Testament, and it's one that probably most of us have never even heard of. His name is Melchizedek. Right? which is a fun name. Right? So if any of you are having kids in the next few years and you were looking for a name that starts with an M, this is one I would suggest for you. Right? It was almost going to be Malachi's name, but April overruled that one. Right? She wouldn't let me name him James Melchizedek Rakes. It was a little tongue twister. Right? He's this little-known character from the Old Testament. In fact, what's interesting about it is he's mentioned eight times in the book of Hebrews, from chapter 5 through verse, or chapter 7, eight different times, two times here in this passage. Now watch this. He's only mentioned twice in the Old Testament. So eight times in the book of Hebrews, but only twice in the book of or, or in the whole Old Testament. One of them is in Psalm 110, verse 4, which is quoted in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 6. But that doesn't tell you anything about him. You see, the only thing we know about him comes from the book of Genesis. And we're going to dig deeper into that as we get into chapter 6 and 7 of Hebrews, and so we won't go into all that detail, but for this morning, I just want to kind of introduce you to his story. In, he, in Genesis chapter 14, you see Abraham had to rescue his, his nephew Lot. Lot was always getting in trouble, and he ran with the wrong crowd, and you can read all that story. And so in verse chapter 14 of Genesis, Abraham has to go rescue him. He has to go defeat these other kings, and he does that. And he's on his way back to the promised land that God had promised him. And on his way back, he meets this strange character that we know very little about in, in Genesis chapter 14, verse 18. This is what it says. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out wine, or bread and wine. He was a priest to the God Most High. That's it. That's the description that we have of him. And yet he's mentioned eight times in the book of Hebrews, and this is what we have. There's a little bit more to his story than what it is, but for for this morning, all I want to do is kind of introduce his story to you. And I want you to see this description, because it gives us two titles for him. One, he is the king of Salem, and two, he is the priest to God Most High. He is both a priest and a king, which is a different pattern than the priesthood of Aaron. You see, Aaron was never going to be king. None of Aaron's descendants were ever going to be king. They had to come from the line of Judah. 
They had to come through the descendants of David. And so what the writer of Hebrews is telling you is, listen, what God is doing is He's connecting Jesus through the line of Judah back to the priesthood because He's connecting it through Melchizedek. He is both king and He is priest, which is something Aaron could not do, would not do, and would never be able to do because their lines weren't the same. And so this is the order, this is the pattern that the writer of Hebrews is connecting Jesus with in verse 10 when he says, And he was declared by God a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. This is the order, this is the pattern. You see, Jesus is not just a priest, he is a priest and he is king. You see, and for some of us, this is where we need to be confronted with this text this morning. Because for some of us, we're okay with Jesus being a Savior. We're okay with Jesus being the author and the source of our eternal salvation. And we're okay because He can get us into heaven. And we're okay with, with Him being our, kind of our fire insurance policy. That when my life is over, then I'm His and He's the priest and He can get me into heaven. We're okay with that picture of Jesus. Honestly, some of us, we're okay with Jesus dying on the cross. The problem is we want to leave Him there because when He's on the cross, He's a sacrifice and He's powerless. But I want you to see what the text is telling you this morning. He's not just a priest. He is the priest and the king that is connected into one. You see, we can't leave him on the cross to be our saving high priest because he's not just that priest. He is also the king. You don't get to accept him as savior without accepting him as king, which means he is the ruler of your life. Which means He is the one in charge of your life. He is the one that gets to call the shots. You see, for some of us, we like Him on the cross and we keep Him there and He's our fire insurance. And when we die, we're going to pull that little cross with Jesus out in our pocket and we're going to say, hey God, let me in. And we think we can live with Him in our pockets. And we're okay with this idea of Him being our great salvation, but we forget that salvation is now. Salvation is here because to accept Him as the priest that brings salvation is to accept Him as King of our life, which means some of us got to get off the throne that we think we own our own life and let Him sit where He rightfully belongs. He is not just the priest in our lives. He is the King of our lives. And we don't get to accept Him as one without accepting Him as the other. And so many of us are sitting here and we're like, yeah, we like Him as Savior, but we're not sure about this idea of King. According to the order of Melchizedek, He is both. He is the one who calls the shots in your life. He is the one who determines the direction of your life. He is the one who determines every aspect and every area of your life. And so when was the last time we came to Jesus with this expectation, this thanksgiving of what He did, but also the acknowledgement of you are the one in control of everything. You see, for some of us, we're so thankful for what He did on the cross. We're so thankful that, that He died for us. and We're so thankful that He gives us salvation and we'll come and we'll sing these great songs about it. We'll show up at a church on a Sunday morning and we'll be so thankful. And we'll even pray about it. And God, thank you for your salvation. Thank you for the sacrifice. And then we'll never live like it makes any difference in our life. The priest who is king doesn't just rule at the end of your life. He rules every aspect of every day of your life. That's the pattern that Jesus follows. That's why He is not just the high priest, but He's the saving high priest because He doesn't just make a difference at the end of your life. He makes the difference in every day and every moment of your life. We don't get to accept Him as just Savior without accepting Him as Jesus the King as well. Let's pray together.